Well, not only is, is June 19th Father's Day this year, but um, Serena and I celebrate our seven-year anniversary this morning. So, so God is very good. God is very good. Our text this morning is found in Romans chapter 7. If you'd like to open there. Um, and the notes are in the bulletin. Let's just start by reading Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. <clears throat> what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Lord God, we just pray that as we look at this passage and, and try to think through the role of your law in our life and its proper use, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would give the increase, that you would be pleased to encourage our faith. Lord, speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. The issue of the law is admittedly a, a difficult one. Um, and this text in particular is a little tricky. Right off the bat, Paul's asking a rhetorical question, which may surprise some of us. Is the law sin? And may think, why on earth would Paul ask that question? That seems like a strange question. I don't know if anyone here has ever wrestled with that question. It's, it's I think, doubtful. But if we look back at Paul's track in Romans, I think that question becomes a little more understandable of why Paul would think his readers, if they're tracking along with him, would ask that. And, and keep in mind that Paul is taught in numerous places at numerous times, sometimes for months, and so he's probably used to a certain amount of questions, especially in face of certain teachings. So the first thing to look at is just chapter 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. So most directly, Paul is talking to, to Jewish Christians, people with a familiarity with the law. And so he's talking to them, and, and he's expecting them to ask him, Paul, are you saying that the law is sin? And, and again, that may not seem entirely obvious, but if we track some of the things that Paul has already said about the law, I think it will become a little more obvious. Um, so just moving through Romans, back in chapter 5, Verse 20, Paul says, The law came to increase the trespass. So law, then, increases sin. That's, that's what Paul says in Romans 5.20. In 6.14, Paul says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Which, if you work that backwards, means to be under the law is to be under the dominion of sin. Sin won't have dominion over us, precisely because we are not under the law. Or Pastor Gary's text from last week, Romans 7, verse 4. You have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. 
the law was so powerful and so antithetical to union with Christ that in order for us to be united with Christ, we had to die to it. Which is to say the law kept us from Christ. The law kept us from Christ. 7.5, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. So now the law is seen as a sin arouser. And then in verse 6, we read, but we have now been released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So in summary, in Romans so far, Paul has said that the law increases sin, puts us under the dominion of sin, it keeps us from Christ, it arouses sin in us, and it held us captive. And maybe now it seems a little less surprising that Paul expects his readers to say, wait a second, Paul, don't slander the law. Are you saying the law is sin? It makes, it makes a little bit more sense why Paul feels he has to defend this point. And, and whereas we, if we're honest, probably don't ask this question as much, if, if we think about it, I think there are two ways that we can sort of do this to the law as well. We, we may not think the law is sin. We may not do what Marcion did in, in AD 144 and try to tear our Old Testament out from our Bibles. Or at least when we do, we'll add in Psalms and Proverbs, right? Um, but it's very easy to start treating the Old Testament as second class, second tier, less important. Especially those laws about ceremonies and sacrifices and priesthood and food. I mean, is that really important for us today? And what we end up doing is making a Bible within the Bible, a canon within the canon. The really inspired passages, the less inspired passages, and I don't think we want to do that. We should not ignore the law. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture, hear that, all Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable. All Scripture is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent, fully equipped for every good task. Leviticus is profitable for teaching, rebuke, correction, training in righteousness to make us equipped for every good task. And so we may not be tempted to think the law is sin, but we may be tempted to think it's unimportant, it's less valuable, it's confusing, it's difficult, it's hard. And so we'll just focus on the last quarter of our Bible. Or another way, I think, to, to mishandle this tension and, and, and try to avoid the difficulty of this problem that Paul is raising up is we should not attempt to divide the law. To divide the law. This, was, this has been done in church history for a long time, but the first person to sort of formalize it as a system or a schema was Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. In his Summa Theologica, he suggested that the law, the law of Moses, can rightly be divided into three absolute categories. Civil, ceremonial and moral. And while I will agree that that can be a helpful way of thinking through the law, um, Aquinas was saying really embedded into the law itself is this division. And so when Christians try to deal with the difficulty of what, what are we going to do with the Old Testament? What are we going to do with chapter upon chapter of, of offerings requirements and, and food requirements and, and all these things that really just seem foreign to us? Well, Aquinas would say that Jesus in his death on the cross and his burial and his resurrection cancels out or fulfills or completes or brings to an end the ceremonial aspect of the law. 
And then, with God's passing from Israel as a nation and dealing with the church, which is transnational, well, the civil law for Israel becomes void at this point. And what remains is the moral law, most clearly seen in the Ten Commandments. And, and this is a very popular approach. It, before I started studying this issue a few years back, it's kind of what I defaulted to. That you can sort of, and in this way, then the difficulty of the law is solved for the Christian because if you're reading through your Old Testament, if you're reading a ceremonial aspect, you say, well, that doesn't apply for today. We're not to offer sacrifices. Jesus is our sacrifice. And if you come to a law that deals with Israel as a nation, you know, how you punish certain crimes, you say, okay, well, we're not the nation of Israel, so that doesn't apply. But then you get to the moral law, and that does apply. And so that's how we read our Old Testaments. And as attractive and appealing as that approach is, I, I think it's flawed. And I think we're going to misunderstand Paul in this passage if we, if, we, if, we, if we use that. So we're going to take a brief little excursus here to try to resolve this issue. To be clear, I think Paul's dealing with the law, the New Testament's dealing with the law, presents it as an indivisible whole. The New Testament, Jesus knows nothing of civil ceremonial moral. Jesus may talk about the light and the heavy, the greatest commandment, literally the heaviest commandment, but he knows nothing of those divisions. Unless you show up to the text already convinced it's there, you're gonna be hard-pressed to see it in your reading through Deuteronomy. Oh, now we're entering into the civil section. It, it doesn't work that way. It, it blends, it mingles. And there are some tough cases where you look through Deuteronomy and say, okay, what category would you put this into? It's not entirely clear. But more to the point, and, and I'm going to move through these passages somewhat quickly. I, you're welcome to follow along. I've written the references down, and I'll read them. Um, we should probably turn first to Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says in verse 17 and 18, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not in Iota, Adiod, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And interestingly enough, both views cite this text as an important point. Those who hold to the enduring nature of the moral law, and specifically the enduring nature of the Ten Commandments, would say, see, Jesus has not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And, and they think that fulfill there would mean to establish, or to deepen, or broaden. The difficulty with, with that understanding is, it's very hard to fit moral law under the heading, the law and the prophets. It's further hard to think that Jesus means I'm only talking about the moral law when he goes on to say, heaven and earth will pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law, except for the civil and ceremonial aspects, which page for page is the vast majority of the law. Now, I think, I think you've got to resolve this passage a different way, and, and the way you resolve it, I think, is in the word fulfill. In, in Matthew's gospel, fulfill most commonly means prophetic fulfillment. You read through Matthew's gospel, this occurred that it might fulfill what was written. You think, well, what does that mean? I think it means that in the same way that we see Jesus fulfilling the sacrificial system, he is what it anticipated. He is what it pointed towards. He is its perfect expression and thus, when he comes as the Lamb of God, as the sacrifice, as the priest offering the sacrifice, there's no further need for the sacrificial system. It testifies to him, it anticipates him, and he fulfills it. And I'm suggesting that that's the way Jesus fulfills the entire law. 
move ahead another chapter or two in Matthew to eleven thirteen. Jesus says all the law and the prophets prophesied until John. There is a predictive, prophetic aspect to the law and the prophets. It's not purely command and instruction. It's not purely you will, you will not. But there's an anticipatory nature so that if you're studying the law, if you're reading the law, if you're a Jewish person, you're living the law, it's preparing you for that day in, in, in 30 AD when a Jewish carpenter walks the streets and, and he lays out his commands and he announces his kingdom and his lordship. And you'd recognize it and you say, okay, that must be what this was all anticipating. Um, we see this most clearly in, in Romans chapter 10, where Paul writes that, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, he's speaking to the Jews here, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And here's the key phrase, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That word end there is telos. We get telescope from it. And it speaks of goal. It speaks of the end of a journey. It speaks of destination, culmination. Jesus is the destination that the law was headed towards. He is its culmination. He fulfilled it perfectly, and in him we fulfill it perfectly but he is its, its goal. And then turn with me to 1 Corinthians 9, where I think we see this distinction between the law of Moses and the law of Christ most clearly. And Paul here is speaking about his evangelistic strategies and methods and how he is willing to flex one way and then the other that he might win more. In 1 Corinthians 9, 20 to 21, he writes, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So what he's saying is in a Jewish context in evangelism, Paul will abide by the food laws. He'll abide by the clothing laws. He'll, he'll do all that so as not to offend the Jews. Not because he's obligated to, not because he's under the law, but because he wants to win them. And then when he goes and he evangelizes to the Greeks and to the pagans, he doesn't do all that. But he still doesn't view himself as without law, as lawless, because he's under the law of Christ. You see, you you can't argue that the law of Christ is the same thing as the law of Moses. There's clearly distinction here. There's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of similarity between the commands and the demands that Jesus brings and what Moses said. But they're not the same thing. Even think of the Great Commission. Go into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them the law. No, the things that I've commanded you. The things that I've commanded you. And then we get a, a really sober warning in Galatians about the dangers of attempting to try to keep a part of the law. And this is really, I think, the real reason why I thought this aside was worth it, worth looking at. Because Paul warns us in Galatians 5 that there's a great danger 
If we go back to our Old Testament, read the law, and think, well, we'll keep this part and we'll keep that part, there's a great danger. And here he's dealing with circumcision specifically. First five verses of Galatians 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. He is obligated to keep the whole law. Not just the moral, not just the whole thing. You are severed from great Christ. You who are justified by law, you have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit by faith we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. Now here Paul specifically dealing with people who want to be justified, who are basing their standing before God on law keeping. And, and I know that's not what people who go back and, and divide the law up are doing. But what we do get from this is the indivisible nature of the law. James will say to break the law in one point is to break it totally. It, it can't be divided up. It's not meant to be divided up. Rather, and I've got sort of maybe two illustrations to help, well then what use is the law? And maybe, maybe now you're feeling more the question, is the law sin? Maybe we should just rip it out of our Bibles. Maybe we should just carry around our New Testament Psalms and Proverbs. Well, I don't think that's the answer either. I think, I think the text will give us the answer. Um, the first model would be that of a, a model airplane. Jared Brewer, um, who's a plane enthusiast, used to build model airplanes. I was talking with him about this the other day, and and, and the model that he's building, there's, there's a line of continuity. There's a line of similarity between the model airplane and the airplane itself. So if that all you have are model airplanes, and one day you walk out onto an airfield, and there's a plane, and there's a fueling vehicle, and there's a bus, you're going to be able to figure out which one's the airplane, aren't you? Even though you've never seen an actual airplane, you've only seen the model, because the model prepares you for the real thing. The model... It testifies to the real thing and, and gets you to see it and know it when it's in front of you. Well, the law of Moses, Paul says, was a tutor to lead us to Christ. It was made and, and set out so that we would recognize our king when he arrived, that we would recognize his commands and his ethic and his, his demands on our life. That we'd be prepared for it, that we would see the direction this is heading. The law says, here's specifically how you make oaths, and Jesus comes along and says, actually, my ethic is so high that if you even make an oath, in effect, it actually indicts everything else you say as not being trustworthy, so don't swear by heaven or by earth or by anything. In fact, everything you say should be taken at oath strength. And if you've studied your Mosaic law, you go, oh, I see that's where that was headed. The law took honesty seriously and here's a man whose standard of honesty is so high and so great or another, another example and this, this sort of the danger of trying to go back to the law to live our lives would be, now I know the insert says Iowa State Law circa 1884 but I'll, I'll switch the illustration a hair imagine, imagine you or somebody were caught stealing a car an automobile in Iowa and you're arrested and you're brought to the station and when they come out to formally charge you they bring out the Nebraska state code of law and they charge you with violating Nebraska law da, 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 about automobile theft there's going to be a problem there isn't there and any good defense attorney is going to make use of that and you're going to get the person's going to get off scot-free aren't they if they've been charged in Iowa 
with a car theft in Iowa with a Nebraska law about car theft. And that's true even if the Nebraska law is word for word identical with the Iowa state law, isn't that? It could be identical. You could even say that Iowa, in drafting their laws on car theft, used the Nebraska laws as a source, copied them. It still has no jurisdiction over people living in Iowa, does it? And so the law of Moses contains a lot of demands and ethics that Jesus comes along and says, absolutely, do that. But because we've died to it, because we are in Christ, the law of Moses as demand has no hold over us. Paul could not be more emphatic about that. We have died to the law to be united with Christ. Now it is useful because as we study the law, we can see the movement to Christ, we can see the fulfillment in Christ, we can see it anticipate Christ, but we shouldn't be turning back in our Bibles to Deuteronomy, to Exodus, and, and trying to, okay, here's how I need to live my life, here's what I need to do. It's not its purpose, not for us. And, and with that then, we're gonna try to look, what is the proper use of the law? And this is exactly, I think, finally, that was all introduction, um, so you're gonna have to speed up and listen faster. Um, for us to get done here um, to Paul's dealing with this issue and the first thing about the proper use and power of the law is we see that the law makes us no sin in verse 7 Paul says I would not have known sin I would not have known if it had not been for the law I would not have known sin for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet now Paul does not mean here that without the Bible no one on earth has any understanding of what sin is. And we know that for sure because he's already said in chapter 2 that when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness their conflicting thoughts, accusing and excusing them. So what he's saying is every one of us, by virtue of the conscience, which is a gift from God, have some knowledge of the law of God, a reflection of it written on our hearts. And it's, it's, not, it's not as clear as the written law is, but we have something. So no one can say they didn't know right from wrong. No one can say they had no understanding. What Paul is saying here in verse 7 is that he wouldn't have understood it clearly. He wouldn't have understood it fully. He wouldn't have understood it with the specificity that the law brings it. Maybe think of the difference between a black and white TV set that's fuzzy playing a playing a show. You can track what's going on. The conscience can, can vaguely, can roughly tell you what you should be doing, but it's not always clear. Men know they shouldn't steal in general, but are there exceptions? What if your family's starving? They don't know. Men know generally you shouldn't lie, but are there exceptions? And different cultures generally have very similar morality, but as they try to work it out just dealing with their consciences, they don't always arrive at the same conclusions. The conscience isn't meant to give that type of specific that type of specified code. It's enough to condemn us. It's enough to convict us. But it doesn't fully expose and reveal sin as sin the way the law does. God's law is like a light shining in and exposing sin for what it is. And we see it clearly. And the TV goes from fuzzy black and white to high-def plasma. We go, oh, that's how bad we are. Oh, that's how sinful sin is. And it gives us something objective, something outside our by which to measure us. 
Secondly, Paul uses the example of the 10th commandment to sort of flesh this out even further. He says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Now that is the 10th commandment. And again, this, this is further proof that the law that Paul speaks of that we died to includes the Ten Commandments because that's his example. You see, if you're still holding on to, well, no, we keep the moral, the civil, the ceremonial, they're gone, moral remains. He quotes the heart of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, as an example of the thing we died to so that we could be freed from it and united to Christ. And he quotes the Tenth Commandment. And why the Tenth Commandment? Why not honor your mother or father? Why not do not lie? Honor the Sabbath. Well, I think because the Tenth Commandment specifically is the one commandment that you cannot externally, objectively observe. We can watch and see whether someone worships other gods, whether they go visit the temple of Molech. We can, by standing around them, observe whether or not they use the Lord's name in vain, whether or not they have idols engraven images, whether or not they observe the Sabbath, whether or not they honor their mother and father, whether or not they lie or steal or murder. But what we have a very hard time doing is observing whether someone is coveting. Only in its most extreme and ugly forms is it clear to us. And so this is the one commandment that really gets at the heart most clearly. And, and this is probably an area that our consciences convict us least about if they're not informed by the Bible. Again, we know in its most extreme forms that coveting is ugly and evil. You know, you think of, the, of Gollum from the Lord of the Rings just coveting and craving his precious. And we recognize that that's ugly. There's something wrong there. But we live in a world with billions of dollars spent each year on advertising that their sole purpose is to create low levels, yet powerful levels, of discontent and coveting. So you see, I want that. See the advertisement, you know, that, I want that. And it's creating coveting us, and we don't think that that's wrong. Certainly without the law exposing it as sin, the average person has no understanding that that is law, that that is wrong. And so the law exposes sin in, in, in greater clarity than the conscience ever can. And then we see Jesus, Paul, and James in the New Testament take this concept of coveting and they run with it and link it to all sorts of other sins. In Matthew 5, 27, Jesus says that to, uh, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That word for lustful intent is with coveting, with epithumia, strong desire. And so Jesus takes this concept of coveting and says, you apply it towards a woman, it's adultery. In, in Ephesians 5, Paul takes it and connects it with idolatry. He says, for you may be sure of this, in verse 5, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. So Paul says a heart that's a coveting heart is an idolatrous heart. And then James connects it with murder and war. He says in chapter 4, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You have not because you ask not. And what James is saying is, at the heart of all conflict between people, are these strong desires, 
these epithumias, these covetings. I want, and I'll fight you for it. I must have, and I will make you my enemy so that I can fight for this thing that I want. And he said, that's a heart of anger, it's a heart of murder, it's a heart of war, and it comes from coveting. And you see, without the law, without, without God's word revealing this to us, we, we would never see coveting as that ugly, as that awful, as that sinful. It's like this big spotlight on our hearts and this little thing, coveting, you know, just wants something. And, and, the, and, the, and the word of God blows it up to its real size and we see it for what it is and we go, oh, wow. And so Paul can say, I would not have known what sin is if the law had not said do not covet. I had some idea in my conscience that this stuff is wrong, but then you read the word of God and, and you see it for what it is and, and it's much worse than we think. Thirdly, we see though that in addition to this, there's sort of an unexpected consequence. While the law is this spotlight that exposes sin, shows it for what it is, blows it up to its real size, it also simultaneously awakens and excites and stirs up sin in our hearts. We see this sort of juxtaposition in the text. Paul speaks of being apart from the law, and in verse 8, sin is dead. In verse 9, he is alive. And then when the commandment came, verse 9, sin came to life, and I died. And again, I, I think Paul's just speaking experientially. Um, some people have really tripped up over this passage. Is he talking about Israel's experience in the wilderness? Is he talking about that? I think he's just talking about his own experience of righteousness and his own experience of guilt. You see, until the law comes, until a standard comes, we sort of do as we please and we live by our conscience. And we may never realize that we're subject to another. In other words, an unbeliever may very well do some moral things because their conscience tells them to. But what they're not doing is doing those moral things because there's a holy and righteous God to whom they must obey and honor and love. And the second the commandment comes, it becomes clear that obedience is not because you want to, first and foremost. Obedience is because there is a Lord, there is a God, there is an authority and so we're no longer simply self-directed. We're no longer simply doing as we please. And so as the commandment comes, sin within us awakens. Because John says in 1 John that the heart of sin, sin is lawlessness. Sin is that desire within us that says, I want to be the boss of me. I want to do as I please. I want, as the book of Judges says, to do what is right in my own sight. The, the temptation in, in the garden in Genesis 3 was all about this. God is giving the information that Adam and Eve need, and they're dependent upon him, and the serpent comes in and says, can you really trust God? Wouldn't it be better to know for yourself? Wouldn't it be better to come out from under his, his hand, be his equal, know for yourself right from wrong? Don't have to listen to him tell you it's right and wrong. Just know for yourself. It's, it's the temptation for autonomy, and autonomy just comes from two Greek words, autos, self, namos, law, self, law. Autonomy is self-rule, and it is the anti-gospel, anti-Christian attitude. An autonomous person is somebody who is not subject to a holy God. An autonomous person is a rebel. And so plenty of autonomous people 
will do nice things because they want to do nice things. But the second the commandment comes, Paul says, this thing within us that hates to be told what to do, this thing within us that says, I'm the boss of me, this thing within us that says, don't tell me what to do, rises up and resists it. You see this clearly with children. You tell Abner, don't touch that. And I don't think, you know, the thing that we told him not to touch was even on his radar until he said that. And then all of a sudden, you can see that desire. <laughs> right? You, you know what I'm talking about. Or let's take it with adults. You're walking through the park and there's a park bench. You have no desire to touch the park bench until you see the sign that says, do not touch wet paint. And then you kind of... <laughs> that sign's not going to tell me what to do. Right? <laughs> Or the stay off the grass sign. I wasn't even thinking about staying off the grass until I saw the sign, but now I've got to get at least part of my foot once on the grass just so that sign and me understand who's boss. Right? Right? This is, and this is what's within every one of us. And the reason why it's important for us to see this and the reason why Paul says this is a good aspect of the law is that as we see our sickness so we will look for the cure. And if we view ourselves as good people, generally, who you know, make mistakes every now and then, we mess up, oops, well, the cure we look for is gonna be equally small. And as the law exposes in our hearts the full ugliness of our sin, and worse yet, the deep within our hearts, at our center of our being, is this part of us that says, do not tell me what to do. How dare you? attempt to order my life. I want to do what I want to do. And the law stirs that up within us. We maybe have been unaware of it beforehand. And then it controls us. It's kind of like the person who, who I'm sure many of you know or are familiar with the concept, the person who, who smokes cigarettes or drinks alcohol, and they, I can stop any time I want. And while they think that and while nothing is forcing them to stop, they feel alive, they feel in control until there comes a day where they have to stop. Maybe they've they're got a new job. Maybe they've tried to make a commitment to, to serve their wife. And all of a sudden, they realize the power this thing has on them. And while they're blissfully going on thinking, I can stop whenever I want, they feel alive, they feel strong. And then when they try to, and it's, the desire reaches up and grabs hold. They begin to realize their helplessness. It's the same way with the law and with sin. As long as we're going on just doing as we please, we don't realize the power that sin has until an alien command, an external law comes in and says, here's how you're gonna order your life. And then this, this rebellion within us says no. And now we begin to become aware of the power and the strength of sin within us. And we begin to see ourselves as spiritually dead. We begin to see ourselves as not good people who do bad things, but bad people who do bad things. And thus, the cure that we're looking for, and not to get ahead, but the end of Romans 7, Paul's going to be crying out for deliverance. Who will save me, wretched man that I am from this body of death? And it's the law that has brought him to that understanding of himself. It is the command that has got him to see himself as wretched, attached to a body of death and needing salvation. And that is the best place you can be to receive the gospel. It's the best place you can be to receive the gospel. To most clearly see this, turn with me to Proverbs 9 to really sort of see this principle at work. This, we just sometimes want bad things because they're forbidden. We want sometimes 
sinful things precisely because they're sinful. In Proverbs 9, two metaphorical women come forward and make a sales pitch. Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, personifying wisdom and folly, which is the major and dominant theme of the book of Proverbs. And and bear in mind that biblically, folly is not just silliness, but it's sinful. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So this is not a non-moral issue. Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly have, have deep moral implications. And in the first six verses, we, we read Lady Wisdom's appeal to each and every one of us. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has set out her young women to call from the highest places in town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, Come, eat my bread, drink my wine. I have mixed. Leave your simple ways. Live and walk in the way of insight. So Lady Wisdom has got a beautiful home, seven pillars. She's got a sumptuously set table meat, wine and food and she's got attendant servants and they're going out in the streets inviting people for free to come to this banquet go to the end of the chapter look at Lady Folly's sales pitch it is markedly different pick it up in verse 13 the woman Folly is loud she is seductive and knows nothing She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling out to those who pass by, to her going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But she does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. She's got bread, and water. And she's competing with a feast. And her one and only sales pitch, her one and only hook, her one and only gimmick is this forbidden. It's secret bread. Stolen water. It's forbidden. And if we're honest, quite frequently, that is enough for us. Quite frequently, that's all it takes. We've seen people make foolish decisions. Just because within us there's this desire for what is wrong. And the law brings this to light. We would never know that while we were simply going along with our consciences. We would never know that until the law came in and said, here's who holy God is and here's what he calls of us. And then within us something says, no. Even when what God says makes sense and is beautiful and wonderful. We just don't like to obey. And the law brings that out in us. And so we get to Paul's conclusion then in verse 12. He's already stated it once. The structure of the passage is the, the question. Is, is the law sin? By no means. And then some reasoning and arguing to explain that. And then in verse 12, he says it again. In summary, conclusion. So the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. You see... The problem isn't the law, the problem is sin in me. See, because there's no sin in Jesus, the law doesn't do all this stuff to him. The problem isn't the law. Jesus did just fine with the law. 
kept it perfectly. The problem is that you and I are sinful, and the law exposes that. The law excites that within us. It causes it to rise up within us. Pastor Gary last week had that great quote from Matthew Henry. The law, by commanding, forbidding, threatening, corrupt and fallen man, but offering no grace to cure and strengthen, did but stir up the corruption, and like the sun shining upon a dunghill, excite and draw up the filthy steams. We being lamed by the fall, the law comes and directs us, but provides nothing to heal and help our lameness, and so makes us halt and stumble the more. That may not seem like a good thing, but it is a good thing. Because blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the contrite, broken spirit, O oh God, you will not cast out. You see, oftentimes before we come to Christ, there needs to be a humbling, a brokenness, a repentance, a, a, a seeing of our need. And the law does that. It does it very well. And so it is good and is right and is holy to drive us to Christ. But as Christians, we've seen already that Paul says it's, it's not the thing we're supposed to turn back to to learn how to live. It images the God, it reflects the holy and pure God who gave it. But most fully and most perfectly, the Lord Jesus Christ does that. And so his commands and his demands and those of his apostles and servants are what command our heart. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The Great Commission is to go and baptize and teach the world to observe what Jesus has commanded. Paul says, I'm not under the law of Moses, I'm under the law of Christ. We didn't look at it, but Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. So then, how does that leave us for how we should be using our, our Old Testament law? Well, first, we should realize that the law was written for us. The law was written for us. And this, this is an amazing thing. We often, it's tempting to think, the law was written four or 5,000 years ago for a bunch of Jews just recently escaped from Egypt on the plains of Sinai. And that's true. That's where Moses began to write the Pentateuch, the plains of Sinai. But we read some amazing statements in, in Romans 15, 4, for starters. He says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. I get that. Whatever was written thousands of years ago by Moses or the prophets was written for our instruction. Now Moses may not understand that as he's but God the Holy Spirit does. And even more astounding is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 6 to 13. He says, speaking of these Old Testament events, the drinking from the rock in the wilderness and, and, and sin and judgment at Peor, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Now, now stop and think about that for a second. They weren't just written down. They took place for us. If you've ever stopped to ask, why would God allow the sin at Peor? Why would God allow that? And the judgment that followed. In part, your answer has to be, so that thousands of years later, people in Martinsdale Community Church could learn something about God. Don't think the Old Testament was for some other people. It's for us. Jump down to verse 11. These things happened to them as an example. They are written down for our instruction. 
on whom the end of the age has come. We are in this most privileged position, no longer anticipating Jesus, but seeing him in the word. He's arrived, and then we get told that all that was written before was set up for us. And so what neglect and what unappreciation would it be for us to sort of put the Old Testament and the law in some sort of second-tier category? Not that important. It would be tremendously, tremendously insulting and contemptuous. It was written for us. It's profitable, Paul says. So secondly, the law deserves to be read and studied. The law deserves to be read and studied. Thirdly, the law is essential to understanding much of the New Testament. I mean, just think in the book of Romans so far how much of the Old Testament Paul has already quoted. And this is for people without their own personal Bibles, people without concordances, people without Esword, people without personal computers, people who, for the most part, their access to the Bible is they gather together and somebody reads their communal text. And yet if we're honest... Paul expects much more of them than he rightly could of us. If if I didn't have my footnotes, if I didn't have my cross-references, I wouldn't be tracking all of these half-verse quotations that Paul's throwing out in Romans. And yet that's the familiarity that he expects of his readers. And and one of the reasons sometimes it's hard to understand passages in the Bible is we don't know what's come before. And so it deserves to be studied, it deserves to be read, and and it really is essential in in understanding the New Testament. And, And finally, the law is holy and righteous and good because in it, Jesus Christ is predicted. He is anticipated. Remember Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples, spoke to them on how all the law and the prophets spoke of him. See, Jesus Jesus is in there in the Old Testament. He's predicted. It's not always that obvious. It's not always that clear. But as we study the law, as we study the Old Testament, we will more and more clearly see Jesus, and we will better understand him when he arrives in his fullness in the Gospels. The law is holy, righteous, and good. It is not sin. Now, its, its purpose is not to sanctify and make us holy. This purpose is not, now that we've become saved by grace through faith, to become sanctified by the law. Read Galatians. Paul strikes that notion down clearly. But neither is it for us to ignore. It's there for us to learn from. It's there for us to study. It's there for us to see Jesus. It's there for us to learn about the holy God who saved us and his acts. It's there for us to learn about the weakness of man and sin, judgment. There is so much to learn in it. So much good and profitable things to make us fully equipped for every good work. The law of God is good and holy and right and just, used the way it is intended to be used. Lord God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that we would not neglect the law nor misuse it, but that we would study and read it and see you and your son in it and see the mighty, mighty saving acts that you have done and, and marvel at your grace and see the setup for the gospel and the setup for the crucifixion of your son and, and all the preparation and all the steps that you took to bring us back to you. Would help us to know it and to love it, to better appreciate our Savior and his gospel. Lord God, we just pray that you would give the increase 
Transform us into your image. In Jesus' name, amen.